0: All right, for the rest of us, we're going to go to 1 Peter. Let's uh, do our Bible study here, 1 Peter. And uh, I know what some of you are going to say at the end of this service, the message, because some of you already told me after last week, wait, we only got done with two verses, and we're going to get about three verses done this evening, and you're going to be like, at this rate, we're going to be in 1 Peter for about five years. Don't worry, we're gonna pick up speed. It's like First Peter's like a locomotive. It's like it's gonna it's it's gonna get us going. He's got this foundational information he's given to us, and it's just it's gonna take off. So as we as we go through First Peter here, uh, it's really interesting as we we come into our our lives. Have you ever have you ever faced something where we we look at uh, hype, something that has been uh, built up? Have you ever you ever had that? Maybe it's a restaurant. Somebody tells you this is going to be the greatest restaurant ever, and you have to eat there, and you have to eat there, and you have to eat there, and then you're wondering if when you go to eat there, if it's actually going to be all that really all that good, and you're wondering about it. Or maybe it's a movie. Everybody's talking about, oh, you got to see this movie. You got to see this movie, and it's the greatest. Or the tools. You know, you have a tool or whatever, and, and guys are like, oh, I got it. You get you need this tool, and then you get it, and you're like. Did I really need it? Is it really is it really that important? I mean, let's be honest. Infomercials have made their living off of hype. Everybody, you know, I guess I pretty much I was took away from infomercials. If you had a British accent and you had a little project that you needed, you could sell anything. And that's how it was. It was like they would they could sell you Oxyclean or, you know, you needed this or you needed this oven that was going to rotisserie the greatest chicken ever and and my family growing up, we Sharon hated it when we had every kitchen gadget known to man. It's like, how many times are you really going to make quesadillas you know, with your George Foreman grill and your quesadilla maker in the rotisserie and you never use your stove again because you had to buy all these gadgets? And they, they've made it all on this idea of hype, hype, hype. And you've got to have it. But a lot of times it really doesn't live up to all the hype that's there. As Peter is talking to the believers... And they're wrestling through, they're facing the persecution of Nero and others in the Roman Empire. The question's going to be, hey, what we just, this, this new thing, this new Christianity, is it, is it just hype? Or is there more than hype to it? What is the substance? And as they face the persecutions, as they face the difficulties, they're starting to potentially drift, maybe wonder. And so Peter's, Peter knows, I need to write, I need to write to these believers who are facing difficult times. And so as he seeks to navigate, he's going to tell them, this Christ, this salvation that you have is not hype. There is hope. And this hope is more than just that longing As what we'll talk. So Peter starts off the book, with, as we mentioned last week, with the identity of the believers. He says, they were elect sojourners who were there in Asia, and they were there because of their faith. In other words, their salvation... The fact that they were saved was causing some difficulties in their society, in the group that they were facing. And so they were these individuals who were saved, but they are scattered. They are not of this world, although they live in this world. And we face that as believers. Now, what happens is, is when we look at the scriptures, we tend to lump a whole lot of theological concepts into one word called saved. And, that, and that's true. It, it's not a bad bad aspect, but we often just say, okay, we're saved, we're saved. But what does that entail? And as we look at this passage of Scripture, Peter's going to unpack just in a little way one of those slices of the word saved. He's going to talk about what happens when we go into our lives, we live it, and when you think about what's happened with these believers, is that as the boat's going, they're causing ripples. Their new life in Christ and being saved is causing wakes in the lives of everyone else. And other people aren't liking that. And so there's suffering, there's, there's battles that they're facing in their society. So he takes the time to lay this foundation out, to look and to say, this is who we are in Christ. And in doing so, look what he says in verse three. He, he just, in, in laying it out already, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again into a living hope by the re- resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you just start looking at the words there, you're like, wow, there's, there's a whole lot there to, to unpack. And so what Peter is going to start talking about is our great salvation. He says our salvation is a wonderful work of God that comes through our faith. And all of three, four, and five are gonna, are gonna highlight this dynamic. So as we talk about it, look, he says, it is according to his abundant mercy he hath begotten us again. Peter highlights the other side of conversion. We'll talk a little bit more about conversion. But Peter's going to talk about the, the God side of salvation for a moment. He's gonna talk about what God has done. It's often we refer to it from John 3 as being born again. And what does he, what does he talk about? This idea of hath begotten us again, that we are now born again. What, is, what does that mean? It means this that God is the divine cause of our new birth. It is according to his. He is the one who is causing. He is the one who is making us to be born again. I don't make myself to be born again. You did not make yourself to be born again. God theologically made us to be born again. It's his doing. It's not based on my effort. It's not based on your effort. He says regeneration here, it's a passive term. He has caused us. Now the idea of passive here is like if, if I can hit the ball or I can have the ball hit me. When someone hits me with the ball, that's passive. I didn't do anything to get myself hit with the ball. That's what is being used here. So it is saying, God has done this to us. When we are born again, it is not something that I did. It is something that God has done to me. And we, we know that. We can look at other passages where God gives us eternal life to to our soul. We are going to be able to live forever with him as he talks about our salvation being a work from God and him being the divine cause of our new birth. Notice Titus 3.5, it says this. He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness. It's not by our good works. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this is a work that God does in us. None of you caused yourself to be born. Can you imagine next Mother's Day, you decide you're going to write the best Mother's Day card ever to mom. You say, mom, I am so privileged. No, mom, you are so privileged that I was there on that day that I was born. I did so much to make myself be born. I was such a wonderful, and you start looking and you're like, that makes absolutely no sense. I did nothing to cause myself to be born physically. The same is true spiritually. God is the one who has regenerated me. He is the one who causes the new birth in my life. I don't do that. He does that. He goes on, he says, we do not deserve to be born again. It is according to what? His abundant mercy, this great mercy that God, mercy is the pity that God has upon humans, that as he looks down and he is moved with compassion, seeing that there is absolutely nothing that I could do to merit salvation. There is absolutely nothing I can do to earn my way to heaven. So in spite of my sinfulness, he chooses to provide a way to right the wrong. He chooses to send his son to be that propitiation, to be the one who accepts the wrath of God, to stand in our place. And so we, we do not do it ourselves. We are not the cause of our salvation. We are not the ones who deserve it. God says, I am out of his mercy. There's nothing I can do. There is nothing you can do to produce a new birth. You cannot cause, you cannot work, merit your way to eternal glory, to enter into heaven. It is an impossibility for humanity to be able to enter into heaven this way. We do not deserve to be born again because regeneration again is an act of God in our spiritual life. It's instantaneous. It wasn't something that happened in a process. You weren't born over fifteen years. You were born on a you had a birthday. The same thing, the picture that is being drawn here is the same for a spiritual life. There is a moment when we are born again, and it happens instantaneously. And it's not the result of a human experience. It's not that you know, there was this moment in my life when I just, you know, was in a car wreck and, and God saved me. And so that's the moment that it's not based on an experience. There are experiences that may result from my regeneration. When I got saved, there, there's changes that occur in my life. There are dynamics that happen for some people that's just that moment of breaking down and, and utter tears and just understanding they're, they're, they're destitute before God and they have nothing to offer. And, and they realize, and there's that experience experience emotional moment but th- those emotions don't save me it is God who saves me not the experience that i face so as we look at regeneration regeneration is god giving life to those who convert conversion is the human dynamic of salvation regeneration is what god does so when i repented of my sins and by faith accepted god's ways the bible says that god regenerated me that he made me born again and what's the purpose? What is the purpose of our regeneration? As we look through scriptures and we just take that little phrase that's right there, according you know, to, to his mercy, he caused us to be born again. What, what is there? Uh, Romans 6.4 says, So that as Christ was raised from the dead through glory of the Father, so we too might do what? Walk in newness of life. Uh, to, to, Ephesians talks about to put off your old self, which belongs uh, to your former manner of life so there was a former life and now through the and, and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to be put on the, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness what does regeneration do regeneration changes our identity it gives us this new life there is a change that occurs in fact we go on colossians says for the, for which things sake the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. What does regeneration do? Regeneration is going to save us from the wrath of God. And I think that is super important for us to talk about when we're sharing the gospel. I don't get saved from my sin. You did not get saved from your sin. You got saved from the effects, the payment of your sin. The wrath of God that was supposed to come upon you as a sinner. When, God st- when Christ stood on the cross and took upon him my sin, my guilt, what was he taking on? He was standing and taking on the full wrath of God that I deserved, that you deserved. We are, so God, what, what does regeneration do? This new birth saves us from God's wrath. It saves us from the penalty of our sin that we face, First, Second Peter talks about that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Ephesians, and it's in the notes I, I highlighted there. It's two. It's not two fourteen. It's two two to four. I think I have the wrong reference in there. Weren't in times past you walked according to the course of this world, had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So he talks about, Paul talks about that there is a change in our nature. When I was regenerated, when I got saved, when that occurred, my new birth happened, God implanted within me a new nature, a new self, a new will, a new desire that I could now say no to sin through the power of of Jesus Christ. That I had that new dynamic that was within me. He goes on, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we know this verse. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature. Old things are passed away; all things are become new. Galatians talks about it. For in Christ, neither uh, for Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. A creature. Wow, that was a good one. A new creation or new creature. He again talks about as as we are born again, the regeneration that occurs, the new life, the new birth it gives us all these dynamics, the new mind, the new heart, the new will, the new, as I used to talk with the kids, a new want to. You know, I wanted to do this, but now I want to do this. There is a new wanter in my life. That all takes place by the power of God working at regeneration in my life. We have Colossians 3, we're regeneration. We're put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved. We could talk about that we're beloved by God. We can also talk about that regeneration makes us holy. We'll flesh that out a little bit later in chapter one here when it talks about be holy as I am holy. And we'll talk about the holiness of God that has been placed within us. So when we look at regeneration, I think there's another important dynamic that goes along with the concept of a new birth. When you were born, what, what happens? What's expected? Jesus says that you would know if you continue my words, you're my disciples indeed. By this shall all men know that you are my followers. You are my disciples if you have love for one another. Regeneration makes us a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. It brings us into that relationship with him. Think about it this way. You have new birth. What is the natural process? The baby does what? the baby grows, right? And the baby grows from a toddler into an adolescent. And then if you don't kill them by the time the adolescence is done, they grow into semi-adulthood and then eventually maybe adulthood and it goes on and on and on. That is the natural process of birth. It goes, it goes from one to the other. The purpose of birth is not to dwell in the event. We remember the event yearly when we were born. But the natural process is to grow toward maturity and adulthood. The natural process of regeneration is not simply to say, I got saved and that's all that has to happen. I got out of hell, no big deal, I'm good to go. There is a natural process that occurs in salvation. That's why when we have uh, passages in the scripture talk about, I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. There are are all these dynamics because salvation is part of what is happening to us. We are growing in our regeneration. The same is true of a new believer. We must be moving towards spiritual maturity and adulthood. Can you imagine if you just decided that, okay, you have a newborn— and you decided for the next 12 years, we're going to dress them in the same type of clothes. We're going to see, feed them the same type of food. We're going to talk the same way. And here comes your 12-year-old. And you're like, oh, you go, 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 ha, 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 he's so cute. And you're like, it would make no sense whatsoever. The same is true of believers. We are, when we are saved, there is growth that has to happen. That's why it's so vitally important as we talk. We started talking pre-COVID and we're going to talk post-COVID. The idea of making disciples. We as believers cannot be stagnant. We need to be growing. We need to be following somebody. And so as they're leading me, I'm able to lead somebody else, helping them to mature, helping each other to mature into what? Spiritual adulthood, spiritual maturity, so that as we continue to grow, we are becoming more like Christ, the one who we're trying to emulate, the one who has granted us this new birth. So where did this whole chain reaction start? Where did, where did this, this new, this new dynamic of, okay, I have new birth and I'm going to grow. I used to have the, the, the little domino rally set. They were, you would set up all the dominoes and you would, you would topple them over. And I was never good at it. I never had a steady enough hand. I'd get like halfway through and I'd knock it over. I was a klutz and it would always fall over. But think about what is that, what is that first domino that happens in our salvation? that starts the new birth, that starts the sanctification, that eventually ends in our glorification, standing before God one day in our future salvation. It's the idea of conversion. And we, we talk about, uh, talked about a little bit last week, conversion is man's response to God's offer of salvation. God is offering this new birth, God is offering this growth to be like him. God is offering all these dynamics of the new will, the new heart, the new mind, the new self, the new nature, all these things that are there. God is offering the the ability to be free from the wrath of God, the punishment that we deserve. And in his mercy, he graciously provides Jesus Christ. So we look and we say, our response to him is conversion. And we talk, it's not just intellectually accepting the gospel. It's not looking and saying, well, I know what it means to be saved or well, you know, I know about God or yeah, I, I go to church or I do some of those things. It's not identifying. Just because just we come to a church does not mean we are converted. Just because we look and we say, well, I, I go to, you know, such and such a church or I follow such and such a denomination, that does not save an individual. Conversion, that moment when I accept God's plan of salvation It involves obedience. It involves submission to the gospel, a repentance. My life is going away from God. My life is living in sin. And because of my sinfulness, the wages, the payment for my sin is death. That I am to face the wrath of God in my life. And when I die, that's what I deserve. But in that moment of understanding what Jesus Christ has done and realizing what I need, I turn and by faith, I commit to Jesus Christ. Not just saying, okay, I'm going to do a bunch of things to make myself be able to go to heaven, but it is a commitment to his way, a commitment to his plan, a commitment to his salvation. It says, Jesus is the only way that I can be saved. And so as we look at it, Pastor Tony uses this. It's a beautiful picture where Jesus Christ stands in the way of the wrath of God that is due to you and I. That is what we deserve. And yet Christ, in the plan of God, comes and takes upon the wrath of God to pay for the sins of humanity, to pay for what I owed, what you owed. And as Christ stands there and takes that for us, and as we accept and say, I know I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus Christ, I understand that he has died on the cross for my sin, and I call upon him, choose to, to ask him to forgive me of my sins. He grants me this wonderful gift, the wonderful gift of salvation from God. Now, it is a wonderful gift to God. Look at, look at how he goes in the end of verse three into verse four as we, as we look at the passage. He says, because of, which uh, according to his abundant mercy he has begotten us again, Now, what has he begotten us unto? He's going to flesh out here three dynamics of this salvation. He's going to talk about because you are born again, because you have been regenerated according to God's great mercy, what has happened or what is going on? What does this gift entail? He says, We now have a living hope. He says, Those who are saved have a living hope. This hope is genuine. It's not something that we just sort of like, eh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's this longing that I have, a desire. I hope it'll come to pass. It is a concrete, genuine, vital thing that we can hold to. It's not a baseless superstition. It's not something that we just look and say, well, you know, I, I, I believe that the Bible's sort of true and I think that, you know, it's got some good things and hopefully it'll all work out for me in the end. Peter's saying we are not living full of hope, but we are living with a fixed hope. There is something that we can set our eyes upon, that we can place our beliefs concretely in. And having this clear vision of the future of what Peter says and God says is going to happen, that is where I can now fix my hope upon. It's not something that just waffles and wades through, the, through life. It is something I can place my eyes on and say, this is what is going to happen. And because this is what's going to happen, I can live in this present world in light of what's gonna take place in the future. Notice what he says. When he says, our living hope, notice where it's rooted in. Just catch what it's grounded in? Our, live, our lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is grounded. It is secured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we could go to 1 Corinthians 15 and talk about the validity of the resurrection where Peter, or Paul says, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, our, our, our religion, our faith, it's vain, it's worthless. If, if it's there, there's, there is no point for us to be meeting. If there's no resurrection, this is, this is ludicrous right here. All we're doing is just having a happy time together. And Paul is looking and saying, no, there is validity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It guaranteed that God's, uh, the, the God accepted Christ's work. When Christ raised from the dead, it was a guarantee. God says, as he is now the first fruit, guess what's going to happen? The first fruit means that there's what fruit? There's more fruit. Who's going to be the other ones who are going to be resurrected? Who are the other ones who are going to be able to enter in? That's us. Christ, the first fruit of our resurrection, there is a hope. There is something that is coming that is far greater. The reality of the resurrection. We could talk about all these. We've, we go through them on Easter all the time. Is the, is the resurrection real? What are we placing our hope in? We could talk about the empty tomb. If there wasn't an empty tomb, well, then someone stole the body. Or maybe, you know, the guards took it. Well, if that's the case, then those who, you know, stole the body should just produce it. Or those who guarded the tomb would have seen the disciples. We, we've been through some of those arguments. The grave clothes, the condition, the fact that they were there. The fact that if it was a grave robber who stole the body of Jesus, why would they have left the, the, what was the most expensive things in the, in the, in the grave? All the ointments, all the spices, those were those were the expensive things, but yet they left them there. Because it wasn't a robbery, it wasn't a thievery, it was it was simply Jesus Christ rose again. The resurrection appearances and all the all the different individuals who saw them. And the the, the writers highlight that, or was it just a mass hallucination? No, we know that the, the the resurrection is valid. The resurrection is real. And not to mention the transformed life of the apostles. I mean let's let's be honest. You're Peter. You're going to let yourself be crucified upside down for something that really didn't happen, that's completely fake. You're Paul. You're going to allow yourself to be beheaded for something that really didn't happen. You're John. You're going to allow yourself to historically be boiled in oil, sent into exile, face all these hardships for something that really didn't happen. You're going to to believe in your lie that much. The, the, the Peter of John 19 to the Peter of Acts 2, there's a radical difference. And what's the difference? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it's the love that he showed to Peter as he talked with him. There was a transformed, a changed life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ happened and that is what we anchor our faith in. Our hope, our living hope that we face when we go out and we face the difficulties of life, our hope is found in Jesus Christ and the fact that he rose again and one day, I'm going to look to the future, and I'm going to be there too. And I, can, I will enter into the gates of heaven, and that is what gives me the hope to go through day by day. And so Peter says, it's not just a, hey, I got saved, this is cute. This is a, hey, I got saved, and I have this living hope that no matter what I face, because I know based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ that one day I'm going to be there too, and I'm going to be able to see my Savior. He goes on, and he looks, and he says, Christ is alive, and our hope should be too our hope is fixed. It is not just this waffling little thing of longing and, oh, I hope we all get it right, and I hope we're the right religion and not somebody. No, our hope is fixed on the fact that Jesus Christ died, buried, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is coming back again. And we know that. All those studies of end times, all those studies, why? What's, what's part of the reason? It's so that we have something to fix our eyes upon, that we can look forward To the glorious return of our great Savior Jesus Christ, he goes on. He says, "This wonderful gift it gives us a lively hope." He says, "Our hope grows; it continues. It's not it's not a dead hope. Our hope should be growing. It should be maturing. It should be that whole idea of I'm regenerated and now I'm growing. My hope continues as we go. Our hope is the reality which enables us to face even death without fear. For death is not the end of the Christian, but the beginning." Let that sink in for a moment. We can, I'm not looking forward to how I die. Just to be frank, I'm not. I'm not I, there are a whole lot of ways I don't want to die. But I know that death is not the end. And I think we've seen that in a very relevant way. That we can sit here and we have this hope that says, you know what, if I die, I die. I don't want to, die. I, you know, there's a whole lot of things I want to do. Have we not seen that over the last year? You know, I think we can get caught up so quickly in this whole mask, not mask thing. And, and some of you know my opinion. I'm not sharing my opinion. If you want my opinion, you can just guess it and you'll maybe be wrong, you maybe be right. I don't care. But I want you to think about something for a moment. There are a lot of people in our society, we can say, oh, they're just fear-mongering. There's part of it, true, Okay. What are people struggling with? It's death. There's no hope in their death. So for me to look at somebody who chooses to wear a mask or not to wear, I go up to somebody, my na- I have a neighbor who is perpetually fearful of dying. So they wear a mask everywhere still. That's their choice. If I go up and you know what, you're a mindless sheep. You're just an idiot. You need to take that off and come on. What's What does that do for the gospel? Nothing. Nothing. It does nothing for the gospel. And we need to recognize the fact that there are a lot of people in our world right now. It's not about what they put across their face or whether they choose to get a shot or not. There are a lot of people who we have a hope. They have no hope. And we can sit here on a high horse and go, well, you know what? It doesn't matter if I die. I'm going to be okay. Or I can look and say, you know what? There are people who need this gospel. They need to be regenerated. They need to be converted because they're they're not just mindless sheep. They're people who are longing for hope. What happens after I die? It's a philosophical question that has been wrestled with for years. So we have to look and say, part of my responsibility as a believer is to be genuinely concerned with some of the battles that other people may be facing. To look and to say, how do I I address some of that? Now he goes on in the passage, he says there's a living hope. But he also goes on and says, we have a secured inheritance. Look in verse four. He says, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, Peter looks and says, this, this salvation that you have, this regeneration that has occurred, most of us haven't a general idea of what an inheritance is. It's something that's coming to us in the future, maybe, that's been, that's been held onto, that has been in store, maybe by a parent or a great uncle or somebody out there. It's described for Christians here and what is going to be laid up in store in the future. We look and we say, for Israel, it was often their land. And even for us, in part, is it not physical? Is there not something that we look forward to with the new heaven, the new earth, a physical place that we're going to reside in? But there's more to that inheritance here. He says that this inheritance that we have that is coming is incorruptible. It cannot rot, it cannot decay. It is a permanent inheritance that is there. He says it's undefiled, it's not going to spoil, it's not going to, to lose its luster, its beauty. It is pure. It is righteous. It is unfading. It's not going to wilt. It's not going to dry up. But rather, it will last forever. Now that is God looking and saying to us, this inheritance that I have for those who are regenerated, he says, it's not going to pass. It's not going to spoil. It's not going to get tainted and be passed to the side. He says, this is a permanent inheritance that is offered to those who are saved that he is, is where is it where is it stored up in it's being kept in heaven our future home our future residence as believers god is looking and saying i have this in store i am holding on to this for you the interesting thing about the word is it's something that has started and continues so your inheritance right now is not something you're working for your inheritance through salvation, is already in heaven, being guarded in heaven by God himself. It's being safeguarded, notice it, by God, who are kept by the power of God. Now, it's going to talk not just about the, the item, the the inheritance, but he's going to go a little bit further here. The question comes, are we going to see this inheritance? For a new believer, for Peter's Peter's. Uh, the, the people in Asia who are, who are battling through suffering, saying, yeah, that's great, Peter. I know that Jesus died, he rose again. I know that there's this inheritance, but am I even gonna see it? I'm facing all these hardships. Is, is there more to this for me? What's, what's going on? And Peter looks five and says, our salvation, it's a wonderful gift because we have a future salvation. Now again, that, that seems weird to us because we talk about we were saved. But Peter talks about that final day, that final salvation when all this will be passed away. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrows. Where there will be no more battles with the flesh. There will be no more battles with the the mind and the, the heart. Peter looks in verse five and says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto, towards salvation, ready to be revealed when? When is it gonna be revealed? The last time. Peter looks forward and says everything I'm facing, all of this, but I'm keeping my eyes fixed on the future. It's not only the inheritance being safeguarded, but did you notice it says who? You and I. What a passage on the security of the believer. For those who are regenerated according to the mercy of God, they have this wonderful inheritance that is being kept by God that they themselves are being safeguarded by God so that one day we will experience that inheritance, that we will experience heaven, that we will experience the glory and the splendor of all the dynamics of our new life in Christ. The safeguarding here, it's an ongoing action. It's not something that God says, well, think about it. He's saying right now, I am safeguarding you. We are being protected to ensure that we receive our inheritance. The wording, the wording that's being talked about here with being kept by the power of God has the concept of he is the military who has rescued out the, the, the hostage or rescued out the individual, and they're going through, and he is protecting and bringing them along through all the battles. There's still the fire. There's still the enemies who are out there, but he is safeguarding. He is protecting them through so that they might be able to enter into that freedom one day to get them out of enemy lines. That's the picture that Christ is is drawn of God here, that we are still in the thick of it, There are still shots being fired. There is still difficulty that's happening. But God is safeguarding. God is keeping. God is protecting. God is helping and enable us to navigate through the hard times so that one day we will experience the full future blessings and benefits of our salvation. Peter looks and says, this is so foundational. He says, this is how you're going to navigate through the hard times, through the unsettling times of life as we fix our hope, as we think about our eternal inheritance, as we think about the future and wonder of our our great salvation, that we will go and knowing that God himself is guarding, that God himself is protecting us, that we have this future salvation. Peter focuses, notice where he doesn't focus right now. He's going to later on focus the here and now. He focuses on the future. He says, change the perspective. Keep our eyes on the prize. Keep our eyes to the future. He's not interested even in the judgment that's going to occur for non-believers. He right now is trying to give hope to these believers to say, God will deliver his people. God will, because as he has regenerated you at conversion, and he has given you all of this according to his great mercy, he has kept you and is keeping you. And he looks and says, our majestic hope of final salvation should lead us to praise our great God. That's why Peter starts in verse three, praise or blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation should cause us to praise our great God. Peter uses here the traditional praise of the Jews where he talks about blessed be the God, but he doesn't stop there. He makes it distinctly Christian. He says when he talks here, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about Jesus, Jehovah saves. He talks about Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Lord. He is our master. He makes this a very distinctly Christian statement that says, our great God has given us this one, the Messiah the one who has come to take away the sins of the world, the one who the prophets foretold, the one who we have been longing and looking for all of this time. He says, he's here. You have put your faith and trust in him. He was put to death, but he has been resurrected. And we have a hope in Jesus Christ. He declares that Jesus was the son of God, that he is the one who came to take away the sins of the world, to set captivity free, that he is the redeemer, the Messiah, the one whom all of history looked forward to and all of history now looks back upon. He is that one. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. So our great God is definitely worthy of the praise, the blessings, the glory, because he is the one who sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He is that one. It is that God, our great God, who tonight we praise, who we say thank you to, as we come tonight to reflect upon the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. I remind you that it's doing it in remembrance of him, but it is also, as Paul talks about, Eucharisto. It is thanksgiving, It is giving praise to our great God. So as we spend the next few moments singing to God, praising him, beginning to begin our hearts and reflect upon that great salvation that God has given to us, let's remember that we need to give him praise because this really is a great salvation.